It's bloody warm. I don't know if you guys are feeling this, but this is not the time to be stuck in a stuffy radio studio. But it's worth it because we've got a great show. And so wherever it is you listen to this, hopefully in a garden or on a bench or somewhere outside rather than here, um, you are less stuffy than me. I'll be less dramatic and I'll take my towel off and things. I'm obviously being a drama queen. I'm Jack Chew. This is Tune It Over. We go live weekdays, 12.30 till 1 o'clock, and we discuss whatever is topical in my favourite subjects, which is healthcare education and particularly with an MSK slant, but also where that intersects with culture and beyond. So that's why I love making shows like this with actual experts in the field. And as you can see from the titles there, we've got Rachel Moses on the show. Rachel delivered what is an absolute one-off, which was last year, she was on Physio Matters, and it was the third most popular episode of that year, despite not being in MSK, right? So she did like tens of thousands. It was over 50,000 from what I remember, downloads of her Physio Matters episode, really you know, translated incredible insights from respiratory care into MSK. And, and we were passionate, both of us, about how rehabs and tended to be the language we could speak that would be that shared parlance that helped everyone to understand it and loved her work and so you should hopefully have been paying attention to her since and respiratory insights are obviously valuable in many different ways but particularly for the pandemic related factors it's it's something good and Rachel someone that's thoughtful about that big picture stuff as well on public health um very thoughtful in that direction too so can think of no one better uh, than Rachel to have on the show of this week of all weeks um, in the context of lockdowns lifting. It does say, A View from the ICU, mainly because it's a cool title and I'm admitting to some clickbait now. But, of course, Rachel's insights then transcend the ICU in terms of respiratory care and beyond into healthcare. So I hope if the technology is behaving itself as per usual, um, I can get her involved in a couple of clicks. Ali Beverly's telling me that he's air-conditioned office in his fleece. Absolute moron. I have no idea as to why he's in a fleece. That is crazy. Explain yourself. Beverly, but hopefully, Rachel, can you hear me? Hi, hi, Jack. Yeah, thanks for coming along. It is, um, we didn't live stream from what I remember last time we spoke on Physio Masters, but it, it, it was rather popular, that wasn't it? And, uh, and as I described, you uh, really seemed to speak well to our audience and gave them some insights into your corner of the of the healthcare world so maybe we can do that again today but we'll be talking about the specific context of the pandemic uh, circumstance on, on on a day of which, um, which lockdown restrictions have, have lifted and stuff so i want to just open and throw it to you for whatever you fancy go as long as you want tom how are you how do you feel what are your opinions in this direction <laughs> So thanks for the invite, Jack. And yes, you know, this is the 21st of July. So we're two days into the complete ease of restrictions in the UK. And I probably speak on behalf of all of maybe frontline workers, but definitely for those in respiratory medicine and critical care and GP land that, you know, we were terrified about the gamble that is being played at the moment. And I think right. that 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 would be my take on it that it's a huge gamble our government are taking in view of the science the data the evidence the experience um and those the experts what the epidemiologists are telling us um and it is a gamble and i think you know the prime ministers even went as far to use that type of language uh, most recently 
And the health minister himself is estimating we're going to have way over 100,000 people infected with COVID during this summer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my take on the ease of restrictions is that it's not only wrong, it's barbaric. Um, and I think in, in healthcare, certainly in acute care, we would have maybe liked to have seen the continuation of restrictions for much longer, um, certainly until there was no longer any uncontrolled spread of this virus. So I suppose that's where, um, do you have any idea as to when, you know, timing wise or what threshold or milestone you would then feel comfortable for a moment in which things were eased to this effect? Yeah, so I think we know that vaccinations are working. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I haven't checked the most recent um, numbers, but I'm pretty sure about 68% of the UK population have had their second vaccine. Um, we know from the death rates that even when people are infected with COVID-19, they're not getting as critically unwell, um, requiring hospital admission or um, intensive care treatment. But what we do know is the... COVID epidemic also includes long COVID now mm. and not only that we're seeing more children affected with COVID acute infection and also with long COVID so for me this isn't just about the deaths which the government are fixated on it's about the transmission the rate of transmission for this virus and also the impact it has not only on healthcare but on other kind of frontline services but mainly healthcare. Um, and the impact it has on other essential treatments, for example, cancer services, um, cardiology, you know, diagnosis of new conditions. There's the more overwhelmed the healthcare system gets, including GP and primary care, that that, that impact is going to be huge. It's not just about the deaths. Right, because that, that was one of the things I was going to ask is that the charge of barbarism is that based on any one particular variable like is it is it deaths is it infections is it long covid is it all of the above yeah so if we look at the the numbers if you like in january at the peak we had over 60,000 um you know people with covid um being diagnosed on a daily basis um in terms of the daily death rate it was around 1400 um people that would die on a daily basis um, the daily death rate from yesterday was 96 people. Jastel thinks a lot of people, I think 96 people, even one death, you know, is, 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 that affects somebody's life, doesn't it? Um, but that is up over 60% in the last six days. So you see, we're seeing this climb of trajectory in terms of the numbers. So, you know, we can't say the death rate is anything like it was in that second peak we've seen. In January. To, I've just, I don't, I'm, I'll, I'm not meaning to interrupt, but I've just done a little bit of I'm attempting to be a tech wizard. Let's see if I can pull. Has that worked? Is that graphic working? Yeah. This, this is what you're meaning, isn't it? Right. So this is the yeah. differential, but on a death rate basis, this is the differential on wave. Sorry, carry on, Rachel. I was just talking. No, that's. And I think what we have now is comparable data between the three waves in the UK, thanks to the brilliant work of the ONS, and that's an, um, that's an Office of National Statistic um, source you've got up there. But yeah, so, so for me, it's about 
the consequence of the continued transmission of this virus. Now, we know that vaccination programme is working, but we're not there yet. We know there's a huge amount of vulnerable people that aren't vaccinated for complex reasons. We know that children aren't vaccinated. Um, and we know that people are still requiring ICU admissions. So, you know, we, we have um, hundreds of people on mechanical ventilation at the moment um, in our intensive care units and people requiring respiratory support as well. Um, so for me, it's about the, the uh, what we've learned, not only from previous pandemics, but from this pandemic, um, from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, is how what we can do to put make people safe so the restrictions which include um social distancing which include um you know the closing or the restriction of people inside closed spaces with poor ventilation or no ventilation crowds so even if people are outside, if they're not socially distanced, there's huge crowds of people. Um, and of course, mask wearing. So what we know, what decelerates the rate of transmission works. And we know that because we've never plateaued in terms of those really high, horrible numbers because of the restrictions that were in place. So for now, we can see the climb. And if I give you some stats, Jack, that I've written down so I don't get them uh, wrong. Yeah, so think about the impact of Euro the Euro, the football tournament. I'm not a big football fan. Um, and I certainly wasn't very popular because I couldn't get excited about this championships, knowing what we were potentially going to see from, you know, the, what the epidemiologists were predicting. Sure, yeah. uh, on the 23rd of May, we had 2,238 cases of COVID-19 in the UK. On the 11th of June, we had 7,446. So this is daily, daily counts for people who've had at least one positive COVID test. On the 23rd of June, it was 17,908. And the reason I give you the 11th of June is because that was the first match. That was the first match of the tournament. Right. So we already jumped 10,000 in about 10 days. On the 10th of July, so that was the day before the final, we had 32,367 positive cases in the UK. And on the 17th of July, so seven days later, we had 54,674 positive cases. So that was two days before our Freedom Day, um, our so-called government-tagged Freedom Day. So if you look at that trajectory of figures because of, uh, you know, something that the nation essentially was celebrating or the lack of self-restriction, alcohol plays a huge factor in this, social gatherings, um, you know, the, the evidence and the science is there. Now, you know, the... the Again, we're not plateauing. We have seen a drop over the last couple of days. But what we have seen, and I'm sure you've all seen on either social media um, or speaking to your friends that work in hospitals, if you don't, is that slow increase in numbers of people being admitted into hospital. Um, and again, the government seemed to be fixated on the death rate. But actually, as healthcare um, workers, we are fixated on again this transmission because we know when people come into hospital with COVID-19 there's much higher incidence that they're likely to affect other people in hospital including healthcare workers. Well you know um, one of the things it reminds me of a little bit with regards to making sure we get that big picture is that they say about medicine it's a, a bit of a, an adage isn't it now is a, a medicine adds years to life but therapy will add uh, life to years and it's this notion that we might be less uh, 
I mean, obviously, as a respiratory therapist, it's slightly different, but because uh, you guys are doing both in every which way. But um, maybe uh, the fixation on on death rate is a, a less likely thing for therapists and especially holistic therapists to do. You know, wanting that bigger picture analysis that incorporates a, a, a multiple factors. And you're, some of the sequelae that we know of now that definitely affects, uh, continues to, but particularly uh, started to affect my reasoning was the work in and around understanding and experiencing long COVID. Not me personally necessarily, but um, but you know, having many of us having friends and, and family members having that, then that starts to be something that needs to be considered because these are uh, people fortunately far from, from death in this instance, but still um, affected greatly by by the virus in that way and the service provisions and needs the impact on them in various different ways how much do you think that is being recognized by healthcare professionals on one hand i'll do three layers healthcare professionals public and politics oh god i think this is a whole chat in itself but to put it really simply for me um, I think the healthcare policymakers get it. So there's been there's a couple of posts. One that I think is being interviewed for next week, a national clinical specialty advisor specifically for long COVID, um, to develop a national strategy on how we're going to manage this alongside the funding. Um, the significant research funding went in to long COVID, and there's also um, significant but nowhere near enough funding that's gone into the delivery of long COVID clinics slash therapy however it's going to look so I think the policymakers get it um, there's been pressure on the health secretary to invest and the government there's um, the deniers so there's the long COVID deniers um, the people that think this is a psychological process that it's the impact of the pandemic lockdown fatigue etc but I think the very, from my personal take on this is that it's a very real condition. It affects children and adults. Um, it affects people who have both clearly had the virus and people who were asymptomatic. And it's a brand new condition that we need to learn about collaboratively. Healthcare professionals, I think um, in my experience, healthcare professionals um, accept that this exists. I think the the understanding of what drives this is is multifactorial and complex, but um, the the biggest the biggest advice I can give to therapists, physiotherapists, OTs, you know, whoever might be watching this, is just learn the red flags, learn some of the common symptoms, and learn where to signpost people, right. and hopefully that will be through a dedicated pathway across each ICS. Um, you know, once the clinics are fully established, I think there's some, there's over 60 long COVID clinics now established in the UK. I'm right. sorry, in England, in England. Um, and um, and yes, more will be coming. So, yeah, that's what I think about long COVID. Have we, have, are we underestimating the impact of long COVID? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is no fault at all through the professional bodies. So the CSP, the Royal College of OTs, you know, the British Dietetic Association, um, RCSLT, they were all lobbying last year for this, the impact of acute COVID wouldn't just be in an acute phase of a pandemic, it would be long term, you know, as were the physios for MEA, for example. So, yeah, massive impact. Now, if we talk about vaccinations on that, we know that depending on what vaccine you had, it's between 75% and 90% effective. 
But even if you look at the higher percentile rate, that means 5% of people who have the vaccine are still going to be at risk. Now, uh, that's not to scaremonger because the vaccine is effective, but you're still at risk of either transmitting that virus if you're asymptomatic. And who's to say that one of these 1% to 5% aren't a super spreader? And I don't know if you know much about super spreaders, but um, that's why for me, yes, we'll have a vaccination program, but we'll have to have restrictions continue while we're seeing these peaks and troughs in the numbers which we are so i want to just ask anyone that's tuning in live uh, to see if they fancy getting involved in the conversation please feel free uh, to put your comments and questions whatever they might be but i want to ask you all as a live audience to uh, a direct question as to what is what is your take on this on this uh, how concerned are you on the, what is being described um, especially with what Rachel's describing there in terms of statistics what features uh, do you feel are being most um, misunderstood or, or under under factored into the reasoning um, and is long COVID one of those you know that was scary I'll admit a bias there in that I feel that that is being under under factored into that analysis um, and I think that that's something that we should be considering now what the conclusion on policy is for that on a societal level you know I'll uh, I'll admit that there is there is a difference between us there, Rachel, for a few mm -hmm. reasons. But one of them being that I feel um, what I'm not yet hearing, although I, I invite you to give it, is that I, I think there's a there's an absence of the trade-offs. So what what the and, and specifically in healthcare, right? I'm not just meaning like I want to go for a beer and lick my friend's face. I'm meaning what are the the, the unintended consequences, the collateral damage of of lockdown uh, so sustained and that the social sequelae on what we know now especially uh, for social regulation of things like drug and alcohol abuse and the like that are really proliferating off the fact that everyone's social safety net is being uh, pillaged the uh, secondary effects of, of economic disruption including those that are most impoverished are the ones that are then really struggling for support. Now we can make arguments and political arguments that I no doubt me and you would make for that being, that should have been better. But the fact that it hasn't been is something that needs to be accounted mm. for with regards to at some point, when do we try at least to attempt to get back to some sort of normal? And so, for, you know, I, I'm not suggesting there's a gulf canyon between us, but I would accept, I would admit that I'm having having weighed things up and not necessarily disagreeing with your analysis. There's just this massive part that I am grappling with with regards to the downsides and the sequelae of lockdown as well as the sequelae of the virus. So again, I just open that for you mm -hmm. to reflect on. So what we know is that this, what we know now, which we didn't know before, is that this virus is airborne. And there's still a lot of denies around that, but there's, there's clear evidence, I can signpost you to the evidence, and the WHO, now, WHO and the CDC now recognise that COVID is airborne. Now, what we mean by airborne spread is that will mostly occur when people are within two metres of each other, they have prolonged time indoors, and crowds, so crowds anyway, like I mentioned before. Yeah. The evidence shows us 40 to 50% of all people who catch COVID catch it from someone who's asymptomatic. We also know that 80% of, or almost 80% of all COVID cases come from around 10 to 20% of infected people. These are the super spreaders that I mentioned before. Um, and we know that from some of the high profile media stuff like the US choir, you know, the German meat factory that, you know, you can go and Google and search some of this stuff. 
So what does that matter? Now, lockdown is very different from social restrictions. So what I'm advocating for that, I, if I was a part, if I was in the government team or the health minister, I would have continued with restrictions. So that would be mask wearing everywhere, unless you're exempt. Maybe some people are exempt. Um, and social distancing. So not shutting shops, not shutting gyms, you know, not. It's social distancing. Um, limiting your time indoors as much as you can. And obviously the crowds, the crowd control is really important. And I think that was going back to my point about the euros and just look at the evidence for the numbers. So for me, one of the biggest messages I hope people can take away from this is like mask wearing should not be something that you're even thinking about not continuing with. The evidence is there to show that wearing masks significantly reduces not only your potential um, chance of contracting COVID-19, but also, and maybe this is more important that from a morality point of view, the likelihood of you then spreading that on if you're an asymptomatic infected person or a super spreader. Um, and the reason I say that is because we know from some of the most recent studies the efficacy of face masks when worn. So if I tell you that the most recent data tells us, you know, the, the masks are wearing hospitals are N95s or FFP3s, and yeah. 99% effective for the transmission of respiratory viruses. Surgical masks are around 59-60%. Single layer fabric masks are I think just under 50%. And if you double mask, that takes it up to 60%. And these face shields people wear are less than 2%. That's why in hospitals we'll wear the FFP3s and the visors as well. So that that pretty much makes sure you know that that we're, we're fully seals, covered. That, that seals that seals you in. You want to suggest then clearly that that it's not just about encouragement of of compliance with that. You want you feel that the mandate should remain. Where where is your what is it that makes you feel that that needs to be legal mandate rather than social responsibility? Now, that's a really great question. Now we're two days in because I haven't, uh, after work, I went um, into town and I was, my heart was exploding because literally in Newcastle, the, everyone was wearing their masks. Like there was the minority of people, probably comparable to pre the 19th of July, were wearing masks. And I was so surprised. And I know there's been stuff on Twitter, people saying the same. So for me, it's can we, can we trust the public with this mixed med messaging? Um, I'm not sure. But it seems to be that people are choosing to continue to wear masks. And certainly speaking to a lot of my friends, you know, they're not running into nightclubs. They're not changing their behaviours this week based on the lack of mandated restrictions. And I think that's probably because those that look at the case numbers will say, you know, this, we're in this third or fourth wave, wherever, depending on where you are in the country. Yeah. So, yeah, and then I think it's the moral obligation. For me, we're, we're in a phase where this virus is still spreading at an uncontrollable rate. What's different is we haven't got the death rate that's following that. For me, it's a moral obligation for people. What we know in the majority of patients, wearing a mask does no harm to you as an individual. 
We know that socially distancing does no harm to you as an individual. For those of you that have private clinics, etc., it won't. I'm not saying don't stop your clinics. It would be, you know, consider the mandation of masks in your establishment, like hospitals are doing. You know, hospitals have took it upon themselves. Uh, in shops, there's lots of signs saying it is mandatory to wear a mask in this shop unless you are exempt. So. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and let's see what the next couple of weeks show us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that you're talking of, of, of morals and we, and, we do, and we do on this show because I'm a sado for moral philosophy and ethics and stuff. I love it. Getting, I love those, those uh, getting into those different cases and I love them especially when they're applicable to the now, which is just perfect really, uh, for, as you've described it. Of all the groups of people or places that I would look for for moral guidance, politicians are low on my list. So therefore, I could agree wholeheartedly with what you've described, but I don't, I don't therefore, in my next breath, beckon legal, legal mandate. I beckon persuasion, social responsibility, and for us to then respect and recognise that macro analysis that we're talking about today about all the different factors affecting it. Now, mask wearing, you know, you certainly, it's uh, as far as things go, what, what a, a light touch intervention. Um, I think one of the things on the airborne factor, which I'll admit comes into play for me when I'm thinking about it, is that had we known about COVID being airborne sooner than we did, still denied by some, of course, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's pretty damn persuasive, isn't it? The evidence now on that is that, I think it feels the strategy should have been it was it was a bit nice some of the measures were naive in a sense you know when it was when it was overtly droplet or even when we thought it was surface transmission it just felt like there was a the containment strategy and policy felt like that you could comprehend it better the act of it being airborne doesn't decrease its seriousness but it just means that then the the radical and sustained shift in societal behaviour that would that would then continue, you certainly wouldn't have been talking about six weeks to flatten the curve, would we? We would never have made that naive mistake on time frame then um, in public health settings. And it feels like that, again, is something that we can't help but this, this the groundhog day and being reactive rather than proactive because we can't get ahead of it is something that makes me then wonder if if not now then when is something that there isn't an obvious answer because it's something that with it being airborne makes it a, a much more difficult thing to contain and we're witnessing our colleagues in australia and new zealand ending up having to lock back down despite having an effective and somewhat incredibly challenged but you know a zero covid policy in which they have been able to secure it they're still struggling because it's just the virus is more challenging as an entity in many in many ways, and so again, I, I just invite your your thoughts on that because I, I could well be missing something. No, yeah, and the, we haven't even touched on the variant, which we know is more transmissible. Now, what we know from the very recent work, we've always known that respiratory viruses um, are airborne, and which is different from being droplet spread. So we'll have droplet spread, high risk procedures. Droplet spread, basically, if you just if you think about things that are heavier, they're not going to travel as far, and they're not going to they're going to have a trajectory where it hits something and disperses. With aerosol generation, um, it's it's something that sits in the the air for longer, and therefore the spread is potentially more significant. Some of the recent work, again, um, oh, I can't remember her name. She's from Massachusetts. She, she published a paper, really great paper, and um, she basically summarised by saying. 
you know, exhalations. So that includes sneezes or cough, but exhalations in terms of talking, singing, um, you know, getting slightly out of breath. We're basically talking. Um, the air around an infected person or any person has this kind of um, um, mucosal salivatory droplets. And when someone either has like a high velocity, so if they're shouting or singing or sneezing or coughing, then they have this, there's this multi-phase turbulent response, which creates this puff of smoke. And for those of you that have looked at some of these papers where they actually have like air dynamics and you yeah. can see the, the spread. Images, the images are interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, then that's what happens. So you kind of have this, you have this airborne virus that then, as we know with, as we're hypothesizing but there's very strong and consistent evidence to suggest that it's host-to-host -host transmission because the SARS-CoV-2 enters the body through the respiratory epithelium and the ACE2 receptors like we know that right. um, then this is where the type well-fit mask I have to say it's all about the fit making sure you've not got a gape and you haven't got it under here if you've got a mask under here you may as well not be wearing one but it's when um, it's when people are like snugging a, a <laughs> to the to the bottom of the nostrils and stuff. It's a shame. Now there is their neck gaiters. Apparently, it can be like up to fifty percent effective yeah, if you have a really good seal. Yeah. You do agree with Diane here? I've just pulled this up. Uh, thank you, Diane, on Facebook. She said, "It feels like the higher protective mask that worn in ICU should be worn throughout hospitals, not just ICU." What's your opinion? On Absolutely. That? And if any of you follow follow Prof. Trisha on Twitter, she is being advocating for this inside hospitals um, because in the, I think it was oh, South Korea, um, there was another country where they found, um, oh, Sweden, they found COVID-19 in the hospital ventilation systems when they swabbed them in terms of circulating in, in the ventilation systems. I, uh, so, I uh, Send me yeah. screenshots, guys, because I got, I got blocked by Trish before it was cool to. You know, I was I was years ahead of that wave. Um, so no, unfortunately, I don't see Trisha's tweets. But yeah, she's she's done some great work on this. I know. Um, but uh, Julie has asked or put a comment here as much as a question. Uh, she said, "One impact of continued lockdown and restrictions is that all of our training and complex patient discussions have been cancelled. So our lists are packed full of MSK patients. It's exhausting. Staff morale down. One off for stress. Two more going out because." Disillusion. Let me finish this. Disillusion. It's tricky facing summer as more staff on holds too. Just to add to that and, and invite your your comments, Rachel, would be that I think that when you're some of what you're describing in terms of the restrictions, you know, rather than lockdown, it's well worth you making that distinction. By the way, yeah, it is right to say that your your policy isn't then the whole stay home mandate type thing, uh, but it's just the distancing. Um, the economic viability of various businesses as soon as you implement distancing is, is, is an interesting factor. Uh, but also in, in practices, especially those that are going to continue, especially for staff to um, comply with normal PPE as was, and that there'd be no difference really. Um, the factors affecting staffing because of the sustained time period that we've been under, that seems to speak to what Julia's saying there, where it's like, how much how much people are redlining as individuals and as teams you know is that something that you you you're sympathetic to oh absolutely but do you know what is the cut without mandating the continuation of these measures that we know decelerate the transmission of this virus which is deadly um what other option do we have at the moment everyone said that second wave in january was completely avoidable and it was 
you know, we, we strongly believe that as a community of people, of healthcare professionals, as researchers, as epidemiologists, this third wave, um, you know, is is the vaccination program is working. I think if we hadn't had the vaccination program, we would have seen the same death rates, same hospital admissions. I mean, just yesterday, there was over 700 people admitted to hospital in the UK. There's over 600 people on ventilation and ICU. This is two days in to the ease of restrictions. I personally think that's 600 people too many. So I think if this is again where you think you look at the longer term picture versus the short term, the now, and what we know about the trajectory of the virus, in my opinion, if we're about 80% vaccinated, 90% vaccinated, you know, it might, be, it might be different, but it's almost like this storm, isn't it? School holidays, um, nice summer weather, nightclubs reopening. Um, yeah. A lot all at uh, once. A lot of yeah. things happening that gets us that gets us together. What's your just on this? I mean, we can go and wrap. I'm I'm in overtime, but have you got a few more minutes? Is that am I being cheeky to? Have you got some? Oh, you need to Is that all right? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's just a, so such an interesting conversation, and I'm I'm, I'm uh, being cheeky. I'm going to grab you for an extra few minutes because I've been meaning. I'm just uh, meaning to ask you in terms of especially as we get into those uh, aspiring to higher percentages then of, of, of say vaccine uptake, you, you know, vaccine hesitancy becomes, uh, you know, a problem that as far as international comparison goes, we've had less of that issue than, than most in many ways. But um, when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, I wondered what your, what your uh, opinion is in that direction, because it's something that, um, that especially the, the younger you get for various reasons, you have an increase in vaccine hesitancy. There's, there's then, um, various different demographic differences in vaccine hesitancy. So I just wondered if I could invite your your thoughts on that and how we might uh, appropriately reassure or your opinion on mandatory vaccine as well, if you would. Yeah, mandatory vaccine is very, very um, tricky, isn't it? I mean, we do mandate vaccines, certain vaccines um, in, in NHS. You know, you have to have certain vaccines um, to work for in staff. hospitals for staff, yeah. yeah. So you know there there is a, there is I think people sometimes forget that we do have people that do forget that precedent, don't they? It's like uh, you know they they, they uh, yeah yeah. So we do, we do do that in terms of healthcare workers, and that was one of the things that Boris was talking about for a little while about mandating care home workers and NHS staff to have the vaccine or all frontline workers. Um, vaccine hesitancy is really complex, and I remember having a conversation with Arnie. Pundit, he's yes. you know doing their work in London. He has been on the show. I was unfortunately aware that day, and Leanne covered. But yeah, Arnie came on chewing it over. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. Well, yet. I will go back and watch. Yeah, that Leanne and Arnie chatted a bit about her work on. I don't know if it was specifically about vaccine hesitancy, but I also had a, a colleague. I'm forgetting the name. She came on and started talking a little bit about vaccine hesitancy as as, as well. But she was in favour of of um, public vaccine mandates. Interestingly. Um, but anyway, yeah. carry on. And and she, I just had a really interesting conversation with her without going into the ins and outs of it. And I thought, you know, my naivety was that it was this re reason why people, particularly from marginalised backgrounds, who didn't have faith in healthcare system, and you know, what the were those reasons by. But actually, having a chat, thirty minute chat with Arnie, you know, the the layers of complexity in this are long lasting and significant. What we need to do is get healthcare leaders and 
I know celebrities, people on social media, which is happening, which there's been some amazing work in trying to build the trust up in people now. Um, and that includes accessibility to the information, busting myths. So for me, it should we mandate it? Oh goodness, you know what it is? I don't know. I think my easy answer would be yes, of course, because I, I read the reports, I read, look at the science, I look at the evidence, I look at the research, and it tells us that vaccination works. Um, but ha under listening to some people who haven't had the vaccine, including members of my team who haven't had the vaccine, you have to sign disclaimers like forms because the government are collecting this data. Um, so yeah, I've had because uh, it's a fascinating one. But I, 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 I'll admit I, I don't want to live in a world in which it would take for for the. What we're talking about when we talk about mandatory vaccines is sectioning someone under the Mental Health Act and forcefully injecting them with a substance that they don't want to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live in that world. Um, and so I've been fairly strident on that, even being pro-vax. But um, I've also got some, I've caught some slack last six months for, some have argued I've been too, too liberal on this, too, too gentle on vaccine hesitancy. I've been very sympathetic to it including you know uh, mainly because I, I don't like the failure to differentiate between you're really far out there i'm not letting bill gates um inject me with a microchip being considered in the same breath as someone that was literally on a plane being deported under windrush only months earlier how dare you suggest that those two people having skepticism of the state injecting them with a substance i'm not okay with them being lumped in right there is a more there is a more rational analysis being applied in the latter case than there is in the former and that as a society we need to get we need to be better and find mechanisms to improve trust in our institutions and our scientific establishment that might make the persuasive case sufficient to get to a, a percentage that we might might like. Now, forgive me, Rachel, I'm here grandstanding a bit on that. And, and again, I want to invite your thoughts on it, but I have been criticized and I'm open to that criticism. Absolutely, I might be wrong on this, but I, I just don't like, I, for me, that feels like a real category error. I feel like it's not an accurate enough and a sharp enough analysis that kind of bothers me when people lump that in. Um, and, I, and, and so I do, uh, I do get a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that, where I am a bit more forgiving than some would like me to be on, on vaccine hesitancy for those reasons. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's not when someone, certainly the people I've spoke to that have either had vaccine hesitancy or have chosen, opted out to have the vaccine, um, who are in higher risk categories, who may have people at home who are vulnerable. So these aren't decisions that people have taken lightly. Um, these are decisions that people have put a lot of time and thought into you know who am i to mandate that or question their belief or opinion my efforts are concentrated on the education around why vaccines work and why it's safe and effective as we know at this moment in time that that's where my efforts would be concentrated and signposting to the amazing work that's been going on um in the in the healthcare and primary care community about this as well that's one of the upsides of time passing. You know, I've said about the downsides of how sustained it's been. One of the upsides of time passing is the amount of uh, quality and increasing the refined resource. Uh, 
that, that speaks to what we're discussing there, isn't it? And the, the signposting is to not not a generic leaflet. It's increasingly detailed and 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 nuanced and stuff. So uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now I'm not going to be cheeky and go more than ten minutes over time. Thank you so much. Uh, for your for your time, Rachel, it's phenomenal. Uh, Ali's turned up. He had the first comment, and he's got the last one. He said, "For many disabled and vulnerable people, lockdown continues in spite of easements, despite vaccination." I think that's a really good point. Is that you know, what, yeah, what that's the moral obligation bit. So, if you don't want to wear a mask because you think you're safe, think about the others. Because Alistair's absolutely right. It's those vulnerable members of society who are now back in lockdown because they're terrified because people aren't. You know protecting others so the mask is to protect yourself but also maybe more importantly to protect others so i love that as a last comment thank you yeah and i think as well it's just for us to as you were describing like we we, we do need to we do need to um, try and keep a grip of, of our own biases to try and work out as to what typical behavior might be right and uh, and to then observe as to uh, as to how trustworthy different layers of community can be with regards to making sensible and independent risk assessment based on a variety of factors right we've not put that to the test for a while let's see what happens so thank you so much for joining me Rachel. it's been a fascinating conversation as ever and thanks for all the work that you do always a pleasure thanks jack nice one take care speak soon cheers guys i'll see you tomorrow thanks everyone